0: prayers and the prayers of many yesterday so we're very thankful if you'd like to turn to mark chapter 10 please we're going to pick it up at verse 32 mark 10 verse 32 they is the crowd of disciples with jesus And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. (coughs) And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that the reflections of our own minds and the words of my lips may be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, what is the purpose of your life? I mean, why are you here on planet Earth? alive and kicking, or at least alive. Are you clear on that? If I had you up here and interviewed you this very moment, would you know how to answer that question? What would you say? One of the very striking things about Jesus is that he was crystal clear on the purpose of his own life and on the purpose of the lives of those who follow him as well. So first then, the clear purpose that we see of Jesus in verses 32 to 34. The destination is clear, Mark underlines this. They were on the road, literally on the way. It's the same phrase as right at the end of our passage in verse 52, it kind of brackets this subsection. They were on the way, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. He was leading the way to Jerusalem. And if we've been reading Mark's gospel Alertly, we will know that Jerusalem spells trouble. We read very early on in chapter 3, verse 6, how the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Herodians rather, are out to get Jesus to destroy him. And then we read in chapter 3, verse 22, the, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, HQ, were saying, He's possessed by the devil. So for Jesus to be leading the way up to Jerusalem is a bit like President Zelensky telling his cabinet tomorrow morning in Ukraine, um, "I've just booked the plane and we're off to Moscow." What? But there he is in chapter 8:32, Jesus, 10:32, walking ahead of them, leading the way. And understandably, the disciples' reaction is a mixture of amazement. What is he doing? And fear, this is going to end in disaster. So Jesus gathers the twelve, there at the end of verse 32, again, and he begins to tell them what was to happen to him. And he repeats for the third time in three chapters, this time more fully than before with notes of torture and trial in Jerusalem, what is going to happen to him? So, verse 33, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the religious establishment. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Do you see how clear Jesus is on his purpose? He knows exactly why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die. He's heading to the cross. But why? Why is he doing it? As yet, Mark has not made clear in recording the life of Jesus why he's going to the cross. But before he tells us that, before we have a moment to think about that, A shockingly discordant note is struck. Jesus is clear on his purpose, but his followers are at cross-purposes. This is our second point. Cross-purposes, verses 35 to 45. And there's a double meaning there, as you will have worked out, which we'll come to. I don't know if you've ever completely missed the point in a particular context. Can you remember a time where you just got totally the wrong end of the stick? I remember a time when we'd been just a, a few weeks in Dublin, and we were invited out by a delightful couple, um, and over dessert, it became clear that one of the reasons we'd been invited round was she had a particular question she wanted to ask me. So she asked, and she said, what, John, I'd like to know what you think of mixed marriages. Now, I was brought up in this country. I'd spent many years living in London, and so mixed marriages, instantly, I thought, racially mixed marriages so i launched into my spiel about christians and racially mixed marriages and, and there was this i suddenly realized after a, about a minute that there was a rather blank look on her face and that she hadn't been asking that question at all she'd been asking she, this was ireland this is a different context she'd been asking about religiously mixed marriages like protestant catholic background well i felt suitably stupid, and then try to address the real question. (laughs) Well, the disciples, James and John here, just completely miss the point. Yes, they may be clear on the ultimate destination, so verse 37, they're talking about your glory, when you come to your glory. They'd glimpsed that glory, remember, on the mountain in chapter nine, the Mount of Transfiguration. They'd heard Jesus speak of coming again at the end of chapter eight in the glory of the Father with the holy angels but they seem completely deaf and blind when it comes to Jesus' clear prophecy of being tortured and killed by the religious establishment. So when Jesus asked them in verse 36 to spell out their request, what do you want me to do for you? The answer is we want position and power. Verse 37, grant us to sit at your, one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. As they've gone along the road, they've completely missed the turn for self-denial that we were looking at last week. And self-sacrifice, which is what following Jesus entails. And when Jesus asks them if they can drink the cup he's about to drink, the cup speaking an Old Testament language of facing the judgment of God, or if they can be baptized with his baptism. And baptism, incidentally, wasn't a religious word. It was a secular word. It just meant being immersed. Like a a sunken wreck, literally, or sunken in debt. Again, it was used of being up to, uh, over your head in in debt. And Jesus is talking about being immersed in suffering and death. We know from the context. What is their response, James and John? It's a glib response. Verse thirty-nine. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. No problem. We're able. How different from the Lord Jesus Christ himself who shrank, as we'll read later in Mark, shrank from the awfulness of drinking the cup of God's righteous anger. And Jesus prophesies here in verse 39 that James and John will actually drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that he will be with So he talks about James, who will be executed not many years after this for his faith. John, who decades later will be exiled for his faith. Now, when the rest of the 12, the other 10, hear of what James and John have asked, we read in verse 41 that they're indignant when they heard it. Now, why were they indignant? I wonder if you can guess. Well, we're not told explicitly, but I suspect it was not because they had never dreamt of asking for position or power. I suspect it was annoyance that James and John had beaten them to it. Because Jesus then calls them all to himself in verse 42 for some straight talking. Look, says Jesus, that is how the world operates pecking orders, power games, climbing the ladder, scrambling over others. Look at any dictator in history. You know, verse 42, that those who are considered rulers of the, the nations, the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And I don't think this is talking about a good exercise of authority. This is lording it over. It's, it's one of the words that, that's used by Peter, interestingly, later. I mean, Peter was the one who got bumped off the order, didn't he? James and John and Peter were the three up the Mount of Transfiguration, but James and John uh, steal a march on him but he must have reflected long and hard about this. And in 1 Peter 5, he talks about elders in the church must not be people who lord it over others. That's not the way it's to be in the church amongst followers of Jesus. Though it can easily creep into the church. I remember one of our kids saying to me when when they were very young, you are in charge of our church, daddy, aren't you? Of course, the answer was, yes, absolutely, my dear child. <laughs> no, it's Jesus who's in charge. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you. That's not to be the way with you. I was thinking about this, that Jesus explains it in this upside-down way, doesn't he? Uh, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all, that when you follow Christ, when you become a Christian, there's there's a sense in which you almost enter an Alice in Wonderland world, if I can put it that way, where through the looking glass, everything is upside down and back to front. And so it is. And yet, in fact, in the eyes of the one who counts, this wonderful world of Jesus' kingdom is actually the right way up. the right way round, but it's just the opposite of the way the world has it whoever would be great among you must be your servant whoever would be first must be slave of all do you want to be a slave hmm doesn't appeal to me does it appeal to you do you want to be first ah well that's a different question but jesus says they go together And verse 45, he puts it like this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. (coughs) This is a key verse in Mark's gospel, maybe the key verse. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life As a ransom for many. Three times Jesus has made crystal clear that he's going to be rejected, betrayed, tried, tortured, and killed. But never yet have we been told why. Until now. And in a single phrase, the purpose of Jesus' death is declared and the pattern for Jesus' disciples is disclosed. It is an extraordinary statement. The Son of Man, why this is the the figure, the glorious figure from Daniel 7. There was that prophecy about him, and Jesus claims to be that Son of Man. And yet at the same time, Jesus also seems to be welding to it the prophecy of Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant of God who will bring many, to righteousness through his death. Jesus' death is a ransom for many. It's a price paid to purchase freedom for those in captivity. And maybe God has made clear to you in your life at some point that you were captive, that you were not free, that you were in captivity. Or maybe you're struggling to understand, well, what is this captivity about? Well, Marcus hinted at it in chapter seven when he talked about uncleanness, but I don't know if the apostle John was, read Mark's gospel and thought, well, when I write my gospel, I'm gonna actually spell it out in words of one syllable. But if you turn over to, to John chapter eight, you'll see how he addresses this question, John eight thirty-one, precisely about what is the captivity from which Jesus has come to set us free by his death, a ransom for many. Jesus is in debate with the Jews, and he says to those who believed in him, John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Ah, freedom, from what? Well, they answer him, we're offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we'll become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin or keeps on sinning is a slave to sin. Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, our captivity is our slavery to sin. We cannot escape it by nature. We're trapped. But Jesus came to pay the price to set us free, and through his substitutionary death for many, for people like us, he sets us free and gives us direction in our lives. So, instead of self-promotion, it's self-demotion. And the mark of greatness in his kingdom is to be slave of all. Now, I don't know what tempts you in relation to status and power, I suspect that in our culture, not that many of us are particularly tempted to want power, but I think there there is a subtle variation on this that I wonder if we are prone to in a church like ours and in a culture like ours, where we have a worldly attitude that sees church and our church, or any church for that matter, as a service provider. It's a kind of subscription model of church. You know, you may have a standing order to the church. I hope you do if you're regular. We need your support. We don't get it from anywhere else or anyone else. But you know, you pay your due uh, and you expect to get a return. I mean, you're subscribing to the church. The church is there to provide services and uh, you can even go online and rate us. You can give us a star rating. That's the world we live in. You can go to a website on a church and you can give it a star rating out of, you know, you get a, do you get those annoying emails? I just bought a pair of trousers. I don't want to rate your entire company. Thank you very much. I have other things to do in my life, you know. Um, you, prone to, you get those as well, do you? Um, and church can be treated like that. So you can go online and you can check what the star rating of a church is, how people found it, what was the experience like, etc. Now, of course, it's important that people are welcomed. Don't get me wrong. In a church like ours, and I hope if you're new here today, you get a very warm welcome. Um, but it's so easy to think it's, it's, it's about provision of services. I subscribe. The church is my service provider for spiritual services. I wonder how they're doing. Rate out of five. And we need to turn that on its head. Jesus said, no, not that way. That's how the world thinks. The way you should think, the way we should think as Christians is, I am the service provider. If I am a member of a church, I need to think, how can I provide service in my church? Because Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. But all this is so countercultural, isn't it? And we can be so easily at cross purposes with the cross purposes of God and of the Lord Jesus. What we need is clear vision. And that's our third and final point, verses 46 to 52. Clear vision. I think this is part of the same section. Do you remember how in 8, 22 to 26, Jesus heals a blind man in two stages? as a visual aid to teach that we may need multiple touches from God on our spiritual eyes in order to see clearly who Jesus is and why he came. Well, here in chapter 10, 46 to 52, Jesus heals a blind man at a stroke, one flash. And from the human angle, what is the key to getting clear vision? Well, as the story is told, it's to ask for the right thing, isn't it? When Jesus says, verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, "And you forgive the pun, but you might say it's blindingly obvious, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. I'm a blind man. But Jesus wanted him to say it, just as he comes to us, in a sense, and may pose that same question say what do you want me to do for you says jesus to you what are you going to say well it's interesting isn't it that the the contrast between this man blind bartimaeus the son of timaeus and james and john or even the the rich ruler that we the rich young man back in chapter 10 James and John ask for position and power. What does Bartimaeus ask for? It's underlined. Mark re- records it twice, because he says it twice, does son of Timaeus. What is it that he asked for twice? Recorded twice so that we don't miss it. There it is in verse 47. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when they tried to shut him up, he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Here is a man who is begging for mercy. Again, we struggle with this, don't we? Because to beg for mercy is a possession of weakness. We don't want to be there if we can possibly avoid it. But actually, it's the start of seeing Clearly. because this is a story not just about the recovery of physical sight, but surely a lesson about the grant of spiritual sight. And Jesus underlines at the end of verse, or in verse 52, at the end of the story, that it's your faith that's made you well. Here is a man who trusted in Jesus. He knew he was the son of David, the Messiah. Come. And the the result? Well, he not only... Immediately is given back his sight, end of verse 52. But then he follows Jesus on the way. And I think, again, that's very deliberate language by Mark because he's begun, it's, it's hidden in our translation, but it's exactly the same phrase as verse 32. They were on the way, and it's the way to Jerusalem, it's the way to the cross. And now this man follows Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. And indeed, later you read in Acts how the followers of Jesus were called the followers of the way, and where does the way lead? It leads to suffering and death with Jesus. I don't know if you heard the interview this week, uh, there's a documentary just been or just been um, broadcast this week, I think it's on iPlayer, um, about those Brits who've gone to fight in Ukraine now. I'm not wanting us to get into the rights and wrongs of that. That's a whole other discussion. But what really interested me was an interview with a guy called James, who's one of these fighters. Um, He was asked why he did it, and has it changed his life? To which he said, well, of course it's changed his life. But it was interesting to hear how he put it. He said, and I quote, he says, I have a purpose in life. I have my friends, and I have a purpose. He's joined up. Now, again, it's a big discussion. We don't need to go there now. But the point is, is that not in some sense what it means to follow Christ? It is to join up. It is to enter the fray. It is to be prepared to lay down our lives for our friends as we follow the one who laid down his life for us. And do you know what? It gives us a purpose in life. So that question I began with, you know, what, what's the purpose of your existence? Well, if you're a Christian, you should be able to answer that instantly. My purpose is to follow my Lord in service of others, to be slave of all in the community of Christ. It's not about gaining position or power. What I need is pardon. I need mercy. And then having received mercy, My eyes are opened as I trust in the Lord Jesus and I follow him on the way and I seek to serve others. That's what my life is for. In Luke's account of this, there's that phrase where he records Jesus as saying, and, and I find this really haunting as a phrase. Jesus said to his followers, I am among you as one who served. And I have to ask myself, and I hope if you're a follower of Jesus, that you will ask yourself that same question. Can I say that with my Lord and Savior, Jesus? I am among you as one who serves. As you come into church on a Sunday, or as you think about your church family, is your first thought about your relationship with them, well, I am among you as what? As what? Is it about your position? Or is it about your service for others? When we have that clear vision, then we find purpose in life. That service of others may change over time, but the fundamental principle is the same. We're serving others. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It should mold our lives into the shape of the cross, the cross of Christ, to follow him on the way. His life had a cross purpose, and so should our lives if we follow him on the way. Let's pray.